0: Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories.
1: Hi everyone, Dan Amander here. On behalf of all of us at CardioNerds, we are thrilled to bring you our Decipher the Guidelines series for the 2022 AHA, ACC, HFSA guideline for the Management of Heart Failure. Get ready for short and bite-sized, high-impact clinical vignette-based questions designed to highlight core concepts based on cutting-edge evidence that are relevant to your practice. The cases we use are hypothetical and for educational purposes only. This series was developed by CardiNerds and created in collaboration with the American Heart Association and the Heart Failure Society of America. It was created by 30 trainees spanning college students through advanced fellowship with mentorship from Dr. Anu Lala, Dr. Robert Mentz, and Dr. Nancy Schweitzer. We thank Dr. Judy Bizanson and Dr. Elliot Antman for their guidance. So join us as we get to learn about the guidelines and beyond from 16 leading faculty experts. With that said, it's time to get nerdy. The
0: following question refers to Section 7.1 of the 2022 AHA-ACC-HFSA Guidelines for the Management of Heart Failure. The question is asked by New York Medical College medical student and cardio nurse intern Akiva Rosenbeich. Answered by Lakey Hospital and Medical Center internal medicine resident and cardio Nurse academy chief, Dr. Ahmed Gonim, and then expert faculty, Dr. Clyde Yancey. Dr. Yancey is a professor of medicine and medical social sciences, chief of cardiology and vice dean of diversity and inclusion at Northwestern University and a member of AHA ACC, HFSA, heart failure guideline writing committee. We're honored to have you with us, Dr. Yancey.
2: Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. Let's start started. Thanks, Jenna. Hey, Ahmed, I would love your thoughts on a patient I had
0: recently diagnosed with peripartum cardiomyopathy, and I could really use your thoughts on how to ensure the best care for her. So this is Ms. M. She's a 36-year-old G1P1 woman, six months postpartum, who was diagnosed with peripartum cardiomyopathy at the end of her pregnancy. She is presenting for a follow-up visit today and notes that while her leg edema has resolved, she continues to have dyspnea when carrying her child up the stairs. She also describes significant difficulty sleeping, though denies orthopnea, and notes she is not participating in hobbies she had previously enjoyed. She is currently prescribed a regimen of cicubitril-valsartan, metoprolol-succinate, spironolactone, and empagliflozin. What are the next best steps? A. Screen for depression. B. Counsel her to follow a strict low-sodium diet with a goal of less than 1.5 grams of sodium daily. C recommend exercise therapy and refer to cardiac rehabilitation, or D, both A, screen for depression, and C, recommending exercise therapy and referring to cardiac
1: rehabilitation. Thanks, Akiva. This is actually a great case. So the correct answer is actually D. Both options A, which is screening for depression, and C, referring to cardiac rehabilitation, are appropriate at this time. Choice A is correct. Depression is a risk factor for poor self-care Rehospitalization and all cause mortality among patients with heart failure. Interventions that focus on improving heart failure self care have been reported to be effective among patients with moderate to severe depression with reductions in hospitalization and mortality risk. Social isolation, frailty, and marginal health literacy have similarly been associated with poor heart failure self care and worse outcomes in patients with heart failure. Therefore, in adults with heart failure, screening for depression, social isolation, frailty, and low health literacy as risk factors for poor self-care is reasonable to improve management. And that's given a class 2A and a level of evidence of B and R. Choice C is correct. In patients with heart failure, cardiac rehab has a class 2A recommendation with a level of evidence of B to improve functional capacity, exercise tolerance, and health-related quality of life. Exercise training or regular physical activity for those able to participate has a class 1 recommendation with a level of evidence A to improve functional status, exercise performance, and quality of life. Choice B is incorrect. For patients with THC heart failure, avoiding excessive sodium intake is reasonable to reduce congestive symptoms, and that's given a class 2A recommendation with a level of evidence of C. However, strict sodium restriction does not have strong supportive data and is not recommended. There are ongoing studies to better understand the impact of sodium restriction on clinical outcomes and quality of life. The AHA currently recommends a reduction of sodium intake to less than 2,300 milligrams per day for general cardiovascular health promotion. However, there are no trials to support this level of restriction in patients with heart failure. So the main takeaway is that depression is a risk factor for poor heart failure self-care and worse outcomes in patients with heart failure. And so it's reasonable to screen for depression in these patients. Exercise therapy and cardiac rehab have been shown to improve outcomes in heart failure patients. While avoiding excess sodium intake is reasonable heart failure patients to reduce congestive symptoms, there's no specific strict sodium level recommended. Dr. Yancy, what's your take on this case?
2: Well, Ahmed, Akiva, this is really a very important conversation. For the purposes of the response to the interrogatories, you are correct. There is every reason to be attuned to the risk of postpartum depression. It can actually have fatal consequences. And we should not fail to consider this in a woman who is still within the first several months after delivery. As well, you are correct to highlight the benefit of adjunctive exercise and cardiac rehabilitation, in addition to what in this case is appropriate quadruple therapy. But this is where we need to expand a little bit more. As we think about this case, it is ideal to see this patient is on quadruple therapy. This is one of the strongest statements emerging from the 2022 AHA-HCC-HFSA guideline. If you think of the top 10 takeaways from that guideline statement, quadruple therapy for reduced ejection fraction heart failure probably is number one. We believe that this has the most potency to change the natural history of heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. But look at what I've just articulated. If that is correct, that means that somewhere in this sphere of presentation, this patient likely had a very low ejection fraction. And given that they're six months out and she has exertional fatigue, not just sadness, not just disinterest in hobbies, but exertional fatigue, that is carrying a weight, a child upstairs, that's exertional. We have to wonder what's the integrity of her ventricular function. That is, do we know the update on her LVF? This is incredibly important, Ahmed, because we understand that the prognosis for women who have experienced peripartum cardiomyopathy is directly related to one, the severity with which LE function is impaired at the time of diagnosis, and the recovery time for when there's restoration or recovery of the LVF. The more depressed ventricular function is at the time of diagnosis, the longer it takes for recovery or if recovery doesn't happen completely, that puts that particular young woman in a category where there is a very high risk for recrudescence of peripartum cardiomyopathy should she conceive and carry a baby to term again. And so this immediately evokes a number of conversations that get very close to ethical considerations, particularly in the contemporary dialogues that are happening in so many states in this country. But there's yet another thing we need to appreciate. And Akiva kiva. Acknowledge that we need to know more about this patient. Why does this patient have peripartum cardiomyopathy? It's not so idiopathic. Might there have been pre-existing heart disease that because she was so young had not been appreciated? This is where multi-generational family history becomes very important. If we identify a history of velvety dysfunction or a clinical event like sudden cardiac death in a not-so-distant relative, that changes all the dynamics here. We're beginning to understand that the genotype that puts women at risk for peripartum cardiomyopathy might be akin to the genotypes that help identify those with a dilated cardiomyopathy, that is, tighten abnormalities. So we should think about these issues as well and understand that there's a lot more we need to understand. Totally support quadruple therapy. Totally support the referral for cardiac rehab. But let's do a more careful family history. Let's get an update ventricular function. Let's obtain some updated biomarker surveys. Let's understand prognostically what's happening. This is a 36-year-old woman with a less than one-year-old child. Something tells me that prognosis is very important to this patient, and we should be responsive in that regard. We might also want to think about something very practical. I wonder if she's providing the majority of childcare. If so, it will be very difficult for her to incorporate a -a three-time-a-week cardiac rehab program along with structured exercise and a day-to-day schedule that's already fairly intense, caring for a very young child. So this is where the social history becomes really important. We want to think holistically about what does this young woman need to get over this event and thrive? Oftentimes, we find that there was unrecognized cardiac disease. Oftentimes, we find that there was genetic predisposition. Oftentimes we find that we need to think even more carefully about what are the next steps, for example, an implantable defibrillator. There are a number of steps here that have not yet been pursued that are very important in the global consideration of this case. Yes, we got the questions correct, and I applaud the responses, but I'm encouraging you as early career physicians to think expansively about patients like this and provide best care. Thank you so much, Dr. Yancey and Ahmed for the wonderful
0: discussion. Yes, it is important to be attuned to postpartum depression as well as understand the benefit of adjunctive cardiac rehabilitation, but also importantly, we must emphasize quadruple therapy and understand the importance of surveillance of disease state, especially with respect to ongoing symptoms. Also, insights on etiology of peripartum cardiomyopathy, including genetic underpinnings, is also important to discover. There's so much we can do for
2: this patient. So Akiva, let me take it to the next level. I'd like your response. Here's a clinical pearl I want you to remember. Whenever you see a patient with heart failure, from this point forward, I want you to think this way. Heart failure due to. When you fill in that blank, then you can believe that you're beginning to provide best care. Don't just accept acute decompensated heart failure. Don't just accept decomposition of evidence-based therapists. Try to understand What were the precipitating factors? And what truly is the etiology? There's so much genetic mediated cardiomyopathy that goes unrecognized, so much coronary disease that goes unrepresented, even valvular heart disease. It's incumbent upon us as purveyors of best practices for heart failure to encourage those of you that are seeing these patients primarily. To think very broadly when you see them and pause and say heart failure due to, if you fill in that blank on every patient, you will discover that you will immediately start to offer better care. Yes, Dr. Yancy. Thank you so much. That is such a great concept and I
0: will keep that with me forever.